Will you please ask the accused to rise? Do you admit the first count brought against you? Oder nicht an dem ersten Anklagepunkt. Im Sinne der Anklage nicht schuldig. In the spirit of the indictment, I am not guilty. Count after count, 15 in all, were laid out before Adolf Eichmann as he sat in his bulletproof glass booth in the Jerusalem courtroom. To all the charges, he pled the same, in the sense of the indictment, not guilty. That was the same plea used by the Nazis at the Nuremberg trials. Sure, maybe I did do something wrong, but I'm not guilty of it. Eichmann's defense boiled down to two claims, that he was just a low man on the totem pole pushing papers, and that he was just following orders. Eichmann received the robust defense that Israel promised him. Robert Servatius, a prominent German lawyer who defended other Nazis at Nuremberg, represented him. Eichmann had the opportunity to speak at great length in his defense, often much to the annoyance of the prosecution. In the end, even Eichmann knew that the verdict was a foregone conclusion. It was a trial that changed so much in Israel and echoed around the world. This is the fifth and final episode of our deep dive into the capture and trial of Adolf Eichmann. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Right from the start, Eichmann's defense tried to dismiss the trial outright. Eichmann was an Argentinian citizen, they said, illegally kidnapped by Israel. And the judges, being Jewish, couldn't possibly be fair and impartial. And in any case, the crimes Eichmann is accused of took place before Israel even existed. The state can't claim retroactive authority for something that happened in Europe. The judges considered and then rejected these arguments. Eichmann was in Argentina under a false name, false pretenses, and not having ever claimed asylum, they said. Ricardo Clement may have been an Argentinian citizen, but Adolf Eichmann certainly was not. As far as their competence to judge the case as Jews, the judge responded that, indeed, while on the bench, a judge does not cease to be flesh and blood, possessed of emotions and impulses. However, he is required by law to subdue those emotions and impulses. Yes, the judges said, the Holocaust shocks every Jew, including us, but we are obliged to follow the law, and we will. The accused is entitled to a defense, and a defense he shall have. As for Israel's right to try Eichmann, the prosecutor, Israel's attorney general, Gideon Hausner, argued that it was not much different than the trials at Nuremberg, conducted by the Allies after the war on the basis of crimes which mostly did not occur in their territories. The United Nations has declared that Eichmann can be tried, said Hausner, so we are doing so. The world recognizes the moral right of Israel to charge Eichmann with his crimes against the Jewish people and humanity. For the next several weeks, over a hundred witnesses testified either against Eichmann directly or on their experiences during the Holocaust. I covered that aspect last episode. After their testimony, it was Eichmann's turn. In session after session, he responded to Gideon Hausner's questioning with incredibly long and detailed answers, drilling down to the minutia of the Nazi bureaucracy and his role in such seemingly mundane issues as who would have authority to sign a certain piece of paper, with whom he shared a drink with at one time, who would telephone whom over what particular issue. He drove Hausner nuts, 
and on several occasions the judges had to intervene to tell Hausner not to interrupt, to let Eichmann have his say. As many commentators have noted, Eichmann had an incredible memory for detail, except when it came to the Jews. Then suddenly he couldn't recall who told him what, or what he told others. He twisted himself in knots trying to explain things away. When caught out, like with his signature on a document, he would basically shrug it off as something he couldn't really remember doing. Or maybe the document was forged, or it had been filed incorrectly by some assistant somewhere and it couldn't possibly be his doing. And in any case, he insisted over and over again, I was just following orders. I had to follow orders. I understand the demand for atonement for the crimes which were perpetrated against the Jews, Eichmann told the court. It was my misfortune to become entangled in these atrocities. But these misdeeds did not happen according to my wishes. It was not my wish to slay people. The guilt for the mass murder is solely that of the political leaders. This was one thread of his argument. Yes, I participated in the system of mass murder, he admitted, but I was just a small cog in a big wheel, just a low-level bureaucrat complying with orders from my political masters. I made absolutely sure to get instructions from my chief on even the most minor matters, he claimed, which various witnesses had proven untrue. He was saying, look, I took no initiative on my own, only after checking with superiors. You already took care of punishing the remaining big shots at Nuremberg, but I don't deserve punishment because I had to follow their orders. In the entire post-war period, he said, I have been tormented and incensed that all of the guilt has been shifted from my superiors and others onto me. I did not, in fact, make any statements which could have shown my fanaticism, and no blood guilt lies on me. I am guilty of having been obedient, he went on, of having subordinated myself to my official duties and the obligations of war service and my oath of allegiance. I accuse the leaders of abusing my obedience. This was another part of his defense, and it was perhaps the most bizarre twist. Eichmann was incredibly proud of his service and having been such a loyal soldier. Oh, for sure, the killing of Jews was distasteful, and that he takes no pleasure in. But he was nearly begging to be admired for the strength and depth of his obedience. He wanted credit for a job well done, even if that job, he admitted, was unfortunate. When it comes to the verdict, he said, May I therefore ask that consideration be given to the fact that I obeyed, and not whom I obeyed. The fact is that Eichmann believed himself a man of honor, wrote Peter Malkin, the Israeli operative who captured him in Argentina. Yes, he was cruel when he had to be, and remorseless, but never indiscriminately so. To him, this was the heart of the matter. The content of his beliefs, the acts themselves, were secondary. I had the feeling of Pontius Pilate. I felt it was not with me that the guilt lay. I had to do it. But what was done was not my doing. I felt that I was not guilty because what was being laid down at the Banzi conference was done by the elite, the popes, as it were, of the state. And I had to toe the line, of course, willy-nilly. That is what I thought in the course of the years which followed. And this is how I found justification of what I did. 
In yet another moment of extraordinary obtuseness, Eichmann compared himself to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who ordered the execution of Jesus and then claimed to wash his hands of the matter, leaving the historic blame to fall on the Jews. I'm just following the popes, Eichmann claimed. None of this is my responsibility. No blood guilt, as he claimed. And speaking of the Jews, Eichmann continued to insist that he wasn't an anti-Semite. He wasn't a fanatic against the Jews. He didn't hate them. He tried to save individual Jews where he could, he said. And while again he did follow orders to send them to their deaths, he didn't like it and didn't agree with it. And he never actually killed anyone. Despite his professed love for the Jews and his insistence on being only a small cog in a big wheel, the assistant prosecutor, Gabriel Bach, remembered the powerful contrast between rescuing Jews and sending them to die. For me, what impressed me the most was the effort made in every country to save even one Jew or one Jewish family, and to see the effort Eichmann made to prevent the rescue of even one Jew. Bach noted that at the end, knowing the war was lost, Eichmann issued orders to increase the killing of Jews at Auschwitz from 10,000 a day to 12,000. He was determined to the very end to destroy Germany's enemies. Ultimately, said Eichmann, the top echelons to which I did not belong gave the orders, and they rightly, in my opinion, deserved punishment for the atrocities which were perpetrated on the victims on their order. But the subordinates are now also victims. I am one such victim. So what are we to make of Adolf Eichmann, the man in the glass booth in Jerusalem? The most famous account of Eichmann and his trial comes from the Jewish philosopher Hannah Arendt in a series of articles that became a controversial book called Eichmann in Jerusalem. She coined the term banality of evil to describe him. That is, evil was not the face of a monster, but an ordinary bureaucrat. His motivation wasn't cruel anti-Semitism or fanatical adherence to a sociopathic ideology, but instead the more ordinary ambitions of a mid-level manager, doing his job well, getting credit, bureaucratically covering his ass. His crimes were remarkable, but he himself and his motivations were decidedly unremarkable. And indeed, the contrast of his ordinariness with his crimes astounded the Israelis watching the trial. Nearly everyone who encountered him wondered the same thing. Could this guy, who looks like any old fussy bureaucrat, really be responsible for killing millions of people? Bettina Stangneth, who countered Hannah Arendt's work in her own book called Eichmann Before Jerusalem, writes that almost all the trial observers received the same impression. Eichmann in Jerusalem was a wretched creature with none of the scintillating satanic charisma they had expected. The SS officer who had spread fear and terror and death for millions exhausted the observer's attention with his endless sentences and his talk of acting on orders and taking oaths of allegiance. Depending on how you want to read him, Stangneth writes, one could come away with three different impressions. Either an ordinary man who was turned into a thoughtless murderer by a totalitarian regime, or a radical anti-Semite whose aim was the extinction of the Jewish people, or a mentally ill man whose innate sadism was legitimated by the regime. 
But over the years, and through the evidence and consideration of the totality of the trial, the second picture, that of an anti-Semite taking delight in the annihilation of the Jews, that one tends to emerge as the strongest case. One of the great ironies about Eichmann is that we know vastly more about him than most other high-ranking Nazis. Hitler killed himself at the end of the war. Other Nazis were tried at Nuremberg and either executed or committed suicide or were thrown in prison for life soon afterwards. But in his 15 years on the run, Eichmann left behind copious amounts of testimony, from his own writings to the extensive interviews he did with a Dutch former SS writer in Argentina. In prison in Israel before his trial, he underwent lengthy interrogations with the Israeli police, and he subsequently wrote an additional memoir in his cell. Unfortunately for Eichmann, those writings left numerous accounts of his contempt for the Jews and his pride in carrying out his duties as the operations manager for the final solution. It is true, as many historians have noted, that Israeli Attorney General Gideon Hausner went too far in trying to claim Eichmann as the top mastermind of all aspects of the killing of the Jews in Europe, from the death camps to the slave labor to the ghettos. He wasn't solely or even mostly responsible for the entirety of the final solution. But for the parts he was responsible for, he relished. How could somebody possibly argue that sending millions of Jews to their deaths wasn't an act of extraordinary personal anti-Semitism? The Eichmann trial had a far-reaching and lasting impact. For one, it had every former Nazi running for cover. No one was safe now, even the guys in hiding. Yad Vashem notes that the trial was a catalyst for other trials of Nazis, like those who had been responsible for Auschwitz, which was launched in 1963. It showed attention on former Nazis who not only escaped justice, but were in positions of political and economic power in Germany and the Western world, forcing them to answer tough questions about their actions during the war, and in some cases, abruptly ending their careers. The Mossad, Israel's intelligence service, came out looking fearsome, highly capable, and daring. Following the trial, the Mossad continued targeting high-ranking Nazis and pursuing them around the world. In 1965, Israeli agents assassinated Herbert's Kukers, who had been responsible for murdering Jews in Latvia. A note left with his body said he was executed by those who can never forget. Yet like the initial hunt for Eichmann, the Mossad was mostly otherwise occupied with more urgent threats, like Egyptian missiles, Palestinian terrorists, and Syrian weapons of mass destruction. Israel's political leaders did not demonstrate much interest in pursuing former Nazis. The Israeli journalist Yossi Melman writes that out of 11 ranking Nazis, only three were successfully pursued. Eichmann captured, Kukors killed, and a third Nazi injured. But beyond its intelligence services, the Eichmann trial gave a further boost to the Zionist vision of the primacy of a new Jewish homeland. Just 13 years after its creation, it was lost on no one that, as Ben-Gurion said, only the independence of Israel could create the necessary conditions for this historic act of justice. At the same time, Israelis recognized that Zionism erred in insisting that Jews should only be focused on their future. The trial made clear that the past was just as important. In an opposition to the Zionist-centric focus on Israel and the Israelis, there was a greater respect for diaspora Jewry, those Jews who did not live in Israel. 
This notion was reflected in the changing attitudes of Israelis towards the Holocaust, and especially to the survivors. As Yad Vashem notes, for Israeli youth and other young Jews, the Holocaust was a remote and abstract issue. The trial was a significant step in conveying the Holocaust to students, a process that reached fruition in the 80s and 90s. As a result of the trial, the Holocaust is now perceived as an integral part of their identity as Israelis and as Jews. From school trips to Poland to writing essays about their family histories, young people in Israel grew up with a different perception of the Holocaust than their parents. Holocaust education became an essential part of Israeli education, even military service. Nearly every unit visits Yad Vashem to remind soldiers why they need to fight for their country and for whom they are fighting for. It's been suggested that the trial is to remind people of what Eichmann did. Do you think people here need reminding? I'm not sure that they want to be reminded of it, but I'm sure that they ought to be reminded of it because it's a very important, I would say, chapter in our history in which a, a very great part of our nation has been murdered. The historian Anita Shapiro writes that for the first time, testimonies by survivors brought the story of the Holocaust into every Israeli home, making it personal, close, and intimate, a part of the Israeli national experience. History, writes Deborah Lipstadt, was turned into collective memory. It took the survivors' intensely personal experiences coming into the public realm for the nation's perceptions about them to change, and for Israeli society to begin to fully adopt the survivors as one of their own. Indeed, even the use of the word Holocaust was changed by the trial. The term had already been used to refer to the genocide of the Jews, but many historians have noted that the sheer volume of its use during the trial fixed the term in the global mindset, amongst Israelis, Jews, and non-Jews around the world. It opened an intense interest in further study, both academically, but also in publishing the memoirs and recollections of the survivors themselves. From international Jewish prudence around genocide to Israeli self-identity to internal Jewish pride and an intense interest in family history and youth education, the trial had far-reaching effects and a decades-long impact still felt today. The Eichmann trial was never just about bringing to justice this one man for his crimes. But of course, the trial did end. The judges did need to deliver a verdict. Eichmann no doubt knew as well as anyone else that his trial's outcome was assured. In the courtroom at Jerusalem, the stage is set for the 115th session of the trial of Adolf Eichmann. Prosecution and defense awaiting the announcement of the verdict. After 114 sessions, the trial ended on August 14, 1961. In December, the judges returned with their verdict and the sentence. Guilty on all 15 counts, including crimes against the Jewish people, crimes against humanity, war crimes and membership in hostile organizations. The judges made clear, in moving prose well worth reading, that their decision was based on evidence, not on the bulk of the survivor's testimony. The judges did acknowledge their appreciation for the great educational value of the trial, which is to be welcomed, as well as the testimony given by the survivors, whom the judges said poured out their hearts. But as far as the court is concerned, under the rule of law, they said, such things are to be regarded as byproducts of the trial. When it came to his sentence, the judges noted that they were allowed discretion in choosing his fate. In only a single law does Israel allow for the death penalty, the Nazis and Nazi collaborators law under which Eichmann was tried. 
Otherwise, Israel does not have the death penalty as a matter of criminal law. Although Eichmann was found guilty, there was some suspense whether the judges would impose death. With a deep feeling of the burden of responsibility borne by us, the judges said, we reached the conclusion that in order to punish the accused and deter others, the maximum penalty laid down in the law must be imposed on him. His crimes, they said, were of unparalleled horror in their nature and their scope. Consideration must also, and perhaps primarily, be given to the injury inflicted on the victims as individuals, which was implicit in these crimes, and the immeasurable anguish which they and their families suffered, and still suffer, to this very day. Eichmann, they said, acted out of an inner identification with the orders that he was given, and out of a fierce will to achieve the criminal objective. The court sentenced Eichmann to death, with the right of appeal. In May of 1962, the appellate judges rejected it, writing that when Israel enacted the Nazis and Nazis collaborator law in 1950, it could not have envisioned a greater criminal than Eichmann himself. While undergoing his appeal, his wife Vera was allowed to come to Israel to visit him one last time. Eichmann's final appeal to the President of Israel was also rejected. Shortly after midnight on June 1, 1962, two years after his capture, Adolf Eichmann was hanged at Ramla prison. His last words were said to be, Long live Germany, long live Argentina, long live Austria. These are the three countries with which I have been most connected and which I will not forget. I greet my wife, my family, and my friends. I am ready. We'll meet again soon, as is the fate of all men. I die believing in God. Eichmann was cremated in a special oven that was then dismantled and destroyed. His ashes were scattered at an undisclosed spot in international waters by an Israeli Navy ship. There would never be a grave or a shrine for a future Nazi to visit, even if they changed their name. Well, that concludes our mini-season on the capture and trial of Adolf Eichmann. In my view, one of the most fascinating and essential moments in Israeli history. I used a small mountain of material to make this happen. Bettina Stagnick's book, Eichmann Before Jerusalem, Neil Bascom's Hunting Eichmann, Deborah Lipstadt's The Eichmann Trial, and Peter Malkin's Eichmann in My Hands were the main books that I read. I watched hours of footage from the trial from the archives of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, pages and pages of trial transcripts, a bazillion articles from all over the place, interviews I found online, and a whole lot more. You should feel lucky that I only made you listen to five episodes. I hope you enjoyed this series and learned something. I'll be back soon with more episodes on Israel in the 1960s as we continue along with season four here at Jew I Don't Know. The music today was the composer Yehoyachin Stutsuski, a Yiddish anti-fascist song from the old country, Pearl Jam, yes, and Yehuda Poliker. Thanks everyone for listening. Lehitraot. See you later. <laughs> Shayazki, 